Welcome to the Journey Church Houston podcast. The Journey is a church plant in Houston, Texas, inviting people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. Whether you are a skeptic, a spiritual seeker, or a committed follower of Jesus Christ, we pray this podcast engages your heart and your mind with the truth claims of Christianity, why it's believable, and how it makes sense of our lives and the world. And we hope you are inspired to take your next step in your spiritual journey. In this episode, I, Mace, continue our series on the journey's core convictions. These are the beliefs we hold most dear because they are essential Christian beliefs. Here, I'm teaching on the church. The word church conjures up all sorts of images and thoughts in people's minds. Some good, some maybe not so good. But what have Christians throughout history, around the world, and across denominational lines all agreed upon regarding the church? Let's take a listen as I teach about the journey's core convictions. All right. So in our last session, Stephen taught us about the journey's core convictions regarding humanity, sin, and salvation. What Christians have historically believed about who we are, what we were made for, what went wrong, and what God has done and what he will do to fix it. And in short, humanity was uniquely created to be God's image bearers, his representatives, his co-rulers. But we all fall short of this calling. And the biblical word for this is sin, and the consequence of sin is death. But the good news, the gospel, is that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at the end of the lesson, Stephen challenged us to ask ourselves, what about the Christian understanding of humanity, the fall, and salvation directly addresses the desires or fears in our culture? And so I want to start this uh, lesson by just taking a, a moment and discussing that. Maybe that's something you've thought about, or maybe just sitting here right now, spending a moment thinking about it. What comes to mind? How is, maybe another way of thinking about this question is, how is the good news, how is the gospel good news to the people around us? It brings hope. Yeah, it brings hope, for sure. Yeah, I think people sense that there's something wrong with the world. You know, everybody has identified some sort of problems that are going on in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we know that that's caused by sin, largely. Yeah. Sometimes it's just having the wrong world. But it, yeah. That's sin, too, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Uh, but yeah, basically the idea that Pretty much no one is out there thinking, you know, everything is exactly as it should be, right? Almost everybody has this intuitive sense that, you know, something is wrong. They, where we disagree is, you know, what is wrong, why it went wrong, how to fix it. But everybody has this innate sense that something's not right. And Christians have the answer to that, right? Amen. I also think that people are, oh, they, they want acceptance and identity. And they look for it in what other people think of me and mm. how high is my rank in my company or whatever. And you find it in Christ. That's right. Yeah. So people want acceptance. Um, people are trying to find identity. And yeah, you're right. The, there's any number of ways that people try to do that. Um, and we know that all those things, acceptance, identity, are all ultimately found in Christ. Yeah. I, I had a similar thought. I was thinking... Um, you know, whether it's the American dream, you know, this idea that just 
put your mind to it and you can achieve anything, you can have wealth and prosperity or this kind of, kind of similar to what you were talking about, Jessica, this like postmodern, you know, that life is all about discovering and live authentically with your, you know, true authentic self. Um, and as I was thinking about that, whether it's the American dream, whether this kind of like, you know, you do you sort of thing, the common denominator is it makes us our own saviors. And that creates like a burden and it, it, it creates, um, Yeah, the burdens, the word that I keep coming back to, this this um, weight. Um, and it, it made me think, like, is it any wonder that there's an anxiety epidemic in our culture today? Because we're all trying to be our own saviors. And as I was thinking about that and what the Christian story has to offer that, my mind went to the famous passage in Matthew eleven twenty eight, where Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And I think in context, when he's talking about weary and heavy laden, one of the things that he's talking about is people that are being crushed under the weight of um, the teaching that we have to be our own saviors, that we have to be righteous enough in ourselves to, to be right with God. So that, those are all really great thoughts. Thank you for sharing those. Today, we're gonna continue on in our core conviction series. Um, and again, our core convictions are those theological beliefs that we hold most dear because we believe that these are the consistent, historic, essential Christian beliefs that all Christians all around the world, all throughout history have agreed upon, that even though we might have some different nuanced beliefs that, um, as opposed to, you know, some other churches or other theological traditions, other denominations, all across the Christian spectrum, these are things that we can all stack hands on. These are the things believed everywhere, always, and by all. So far... Um, we have discussed our bibliology, which is our beliefs about scripture. We've discussed our theology proper, our beliefs about God, which also included our Christology, our beliefs about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our pneumatology, our beliefs about the Holy Spirit. And then last time, uh, Stephen covered our anthropology, our beliefs about humanity, our hamartiology, our beliefs about sin, and our soteriology, our beliefs about salvation. And we had to get one more ology in for tonight. Today we are talking about our ecclesiology, which is our beliefs about the church. So another question I have for us is, when I say that word church, what comes to mind? I think like a group of people coming together. Group of people coming together, yeah. Sunday morning. Sunday morning, right? Most of, the, most often, those people that are coming together do so on Sunday mornings, right? Yeah. Or in the afternoons. I know what you don't want us to say is that it's a building. Right. Building, yeah. So, funny, funny story, you know, uh, Bernard on the way to service this morning said, Dad, when we have a church, and I said, I think you mean when we have a building. You know, because, well, not to give too much of the lesson away, but yeah, we often think of a building, right? We think of a church building. It's funny whenever we talk about church with Luca, he has to clarify, is it Orange Church, which is the Houston's first with the big orange cross yeah. on it, or New Church, which is 
uh, the journey. Or yeah. Big church, which is... Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so there's diff different kinds of church. Big church, orange church, new church. <laughs> right. When I think of church, I think the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord. Yeah, we hear that, right? The house of the Lord, the house of God. It's good. one or two others outreach outreach right that there's a sense that the church is supposed to be doing something out in the community making a difference in the community doing good yeah that's good i think of church as a place of holiness holiness yeah that's a good word a place of equipping equipping that's a fancy word that maybe we don't use in everyday uh, language, right? But um, preparing one another, building one another up, yeah. I think, well, having grown up in a Catholic household, I think of the church. The church. And I don't <clears throat> necessarily mean the Catholic church, mm -hmm. just any large denomination any large denomination the umbrella organization okay yeah an umbrella organization yeah these are all really really uh good thoughts and and as you can see a lot of different ideas comes to people's minds when they hear the word church and if we were to pull a wider audience especially if we were to ask uh non-christians what do they think when they think the word church then the variety of answers would be even greater right and so our goal for tonight is to see if we can try to reach some clarity uh, and unity about what Christians have universally, historically, and consistently believed about the church. And here is the way that we like to say it. Where we are in the story today, we've been talking about the Christian story, where we are in the story today can be called the church age. All who have placed their faith in Christ throughout history and around the world are united in one holy, Catholic, or universal, and apostolic church. This universal church is made up of numerous local churches local bodies of believers committed to Christ and to one another. These local churches gather weekly in Jesus' name on the Lord's Day for worship, including the preaching of the word and observing of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then from this gathering, believers are sent into the world to invite people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. And so as we look at this statement, it basically divides into two major sections, the universal church, and the local church. So we're going to take those one at a time. First, we're going to talk about the universal church. The Greek word in our New Testaments that's translated as church is the word ekklesia. And just like we're saying right here, this word, as you look at its usage in the, the New Testament, it can be used in more of a global universal sense, or it can be used in a narrower, more local sense. And a clear use of the universal sense is actually the very first time this word appears in the New Testament, which is in the Gospel of Matthew, famous words of Jesus. He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower. And Jesus is talking about where we are in the Christian story today. As we say in our doctrinal statement, where we are in the story today can be called the church age. Now, there's some disagreement among believers of different theological traditions about exactly when the church began, but everyone would agree that where we are today is the church age. But what does that mean? What or who is 
the church. Well, as we say in our doctrinal statement, all who have placed their faith in Christ throughout history and around the world are united in the one holy Catholic or universal and apostolic church. And this is language that we didn't invent. This is language that the church has been using for hundreds and hundreds of years. This language of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church comes from the ancient creeds like the Nicene Creed. And so we're going to kind of break this down a little bit. So what do we mean when we say the church is one? We're saying that there is one true universal church and that all believers are united into this one universal church. The Apostle Paul exhorted the, the Ephesian believers to live unified because we are unified. He said there is one body, and by that he meant the body of Christ, the church. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so we are all united into one church because we all share the same core faith. This is exactly what we've been saying in this Core Convictions series, that all Christians across history, around the world, even across denominational and theological traditional lines, are united by this common core of doctrine. And the body of Christ, the church, has one head, Jesus Christ. And we worship the same God. We have the same Father. We have the same Spirit. The church is one. And then the church is also holy. We heard that word as we were discussing earlier. Now, when we say the, the word holy, we do not mean perfect. To be holy means to be set apart. And specifically, we are set apart by our unique faith and practice. Chief among these, as we've been discussing throughout this Core Conviction series, is that we are set apart by our belief in the triune God, the one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see this in the opening of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. He says, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified, meaning made holy or set apart in Christ Jesus, saints, holy ones, or set apart ones by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So because of our faith in Jesus, we have been set apart. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are of the spirit who has caused us to be born again to new life in Christ. And this is true of all believers everywhere because the church is Catholic. Now, this is the word that's probably the most confusing when you hear this one holy Catholic and apostolic church, because to a lot of us, that word Catholic means a particular Christian denomination, the Roman Catholic Church. But the word Catholic just means according to the whole. So to say that the church is Catholic is to say that what we've been saying for the last several minutes is that there is this thing called the universal church. So when we say Catholic church, in this context, we mean the universal church. And by that, we mean that the church is not limited by geography, language, ethnicity, denomination, or theological distinctives. That within the, the unity of the body of Christ, there is room for diversity. One example that we see of this in scripture is that Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. So the church, Christianity, the gospel is not just for one particular people group. It's for everybody all around the world. And this diversity is held in unity most fundamentally by our common faith. This is what it means that the one true universal church is apostolic. 
So when we say that the church is apostolic, there's one true apostolic church, we are saying that we are all united by the faith that was once for all time handed down to the saints. We get that from the book of Jude, which just if anyone's looking for baby names, I'm a little biased, but that's a, that's a good name. <laughs> so the faith that was given to the apostles to proclaim to all the nations and that has been preserved and handed down to us in the scriptures is this apostolic faith. And all believers in Christ in all places throughout all of history are united in this one holy Catholic and apostolic universal church. Even though we have any number of differences um, historically, geographically, ethnically, language. Um, and again, we have room for different um, <coughs> nuanced theological beliefs as it relates to various things that we've been talking about. Um, and as I look at this idea that the church is one uh, church, it's holy, it's Catholic, it's apostolic, to me, this is part of what makes the church and the Christian story upon which the church is founded compelling. Because what else can unite such a wide variety of people from all around the world, from every ethnicity, every language, throughout all of history? Now, we may imperfectly live this out because we're all affected by sin, but we are objectively unified in Christ. And then there's also the idea that this one holy Catholic and apostolic church has existed for 2,000 years and is not going anywhere. As Jesus said, he will build his church. So this has been going on for over 2,000 years. We are still here. We still have the same faith as the apostles of the first century. If you've been following along in our reading plan through Luke, Acts, and Romans, you may remember a particular scene in Acts chapter 5. Um, so remember, Acts is the story of the early church after the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 5, the gospel is spreading throughout Jerusalem despite persecution starting to break out. And the Jewish leadership is not happy with the apostles because they keep preaching Jesus, even though they keep being told not to. And so the Jewish council decides to execute Peter and the apostles. But a man named Gamaliel stands up and tells them to hold off. And he tells this group, he says, remember there's been other alleged Messiah figures that have, have come along, but they've also, they come and then they go. And then these movements and followings that they start all disappear. And he says, but if the source of this particular group that's following and proclaiming Jesus, if the source is God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. And here we are today. So certainly Jesus is building his church just as he said he would. And we are all part of this one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And this universal church is made up of numerous local churches. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about um, the local church. So what, what is the purpose of the local church? Why does the local church exist? Well, part of the reason is out of practicality. That the word ecclesia that we talked about is translated church, most literally is translated assembly. Right? One of the def one of the things that someone shared about churches that they, they think of a group of people gathering together, right? Um, so it would be impossible to get all believers at all times, all around the world to assemble all together. And so this universal church is made up of an untold number of local churches where, as we will talk about more, believers can gather or assemble together. In fact, 
by far the most common usage of ecclesia in the New Testament is in reference to the local church. And this is clear just if you look at the table of contents in your New Testament, that a significant portion of the New Testament is made up of letters that were written to various local churches. We think of the letters of Paul that he wrote to the church in Rome, to the church in Corinth, to the church in Galatia, and we can go on and on and on. And even the letters that we sometimes think of as being written to individuals, a, a letter like Paul's letter to Philemon, Paul says that he was also writing to the church in his house. So he's clearly writing to a specific local church. Now, when we think of the relationship of the universal church to the local church, I think Dr. Michael Spiegel offers a helpful analogy. He says that the universal church is like an extended family. The local church is like the nuclear family. And so the extended family is made up of numerous nuclear family units. In the same way, the one true Catholic, holy, apostolic church is made up of numerous local churches. And then he offers a, a helpful framework that we're going to use to guide our discussion of the local church. He talks about the three marks of the church and the three works of the church. The three marks being orthodoxy, order, and ordinances, and the works of the church being exaltation, edification, and evangelism. So let's talk about the marks of the church, starting with orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is just a fancy word that means right beliefs or right teaching. And we see this in our doctrinal statement when we say that local churches are local bodies of believers committed to Christ. That there's a certain faith commitment that must mark a church for it to be a true church. And again, our core convictions are our attempts to outline what these essential faith commitments of a true church are. And that means that any group that teaches something that goes against these core convictions is not a true Christian church, even if they claim to be. So any group that says, in addition to the Bible, you have to accept some other holy book is not a Christian church. Or any group that claims that Jesus is not God or that he's a created being is not a true Christian church. Or any group that claims that we can somehow merit our own salvation by our own works instead of salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is not a true Christian church. Different churches can and will disagree on various secondary doctrinal issues, what we call our doctrinal di distinctives, but we must all agree on these core convictions, the Trinity, the deity and humanity of Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and the basic story arc of the Christian story of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. So, for example, it would be like if my wife started describing her husband as having blonde hair and blue eyes. She may be describing someone, but she's not describing me. So similarly, a group may claim to follow Christ and may claim to be a true Christian church, but they are worshiping a false Christ, and that makes them not a true church. And I don't say this to sound arrogance or to sound harsh. Our hearts should be broken for these people that are stuck in these false churches, and we should seek to point them to the true and better Christ, the true and better church. So a true Christian church must have orthodoxy and it must have order. When we, um, we see this in our doctrinal statement, when we say that the local churches, uh, that local churches are made up of believers committed to Christ and to one another. So 
different traditions, different local churches will have different forms of church governance, different ways of understanding the leadership offices in the New Testament and what those look like today. But all churches agree uh, that a church must have members, that different churches may call their membership different things. They may call it partnership, mission partnership, covenant membership. They, they may not even have an official term for their members. And different churches will have different ways of what it looks like to join their church based on their doctrinal distinctives, their context. But everyone agrees when we say a church must have members, we mean a church must have people, which most churches throughout history have called members. A church must have members. Jonathan Lehman puts it clearly and succinctly when he writes that a church is its membership. And then I also think he offers a, a helpful definition of what a church member is. He says, a church member is someone who is formally recognized by the other local church members as a Christian and a part of Christ's universal body. So this is what it means most fundamentally to be a church member. It means that you are committed to a particular local body of believers where you mutually affirm one another's faith and exhort and encourage one another to grow in Christ. In a similar way, um, Christ commands me to love all people, but I made a vow to love a particular person, my wife, and to be particularly devoted to her in a special kind of way that is unique to my relationship with her. And we formally recognize that vow and commit it to one another during a wedding ceremony attended by many friends and family as witnesses. And we wear these rings as a visual symbol of our commitment to one another. The same is true for our commitment to one another in local churches. Somehow, some way, we formally recognize our commitment to one another as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ and in our local church body uh, in particular. And the two most important means by which we do this in accordance with the commands of Jesus are baptism and the Lord's Supper, which collectively are often called the ordinances, which is the third mark of a true church. Our doctrinal statement says that these local churches gather weekly in Jesus' name on the Lord's Day for worship, including observing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Once again, Different denominations, different traditions, different local churches will have different nuanced beliefs, different doctrinal distinctives regarding baptism and the Lord's Supper, such as when and how someone should be baptized, Christ's relationship to the Lord's Supper. But we all share certain core convictions. Those include that baptism is the covenant initiation ceremony, whereby the, the person is baptized in or by water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and is recognized as a member of the covenant community, the church. To stick with the analogy we just discussed, this would be like the wedding ceremony or the ring. And then the Lord's Supper is the covenant renewal ceremony, whereby believers partake of the bread and the cup in remembrance of Christ's broken body and shed blood on the, Christ, on the cross for our sins. It's like a regular vow renewal ceremony week after week, or however long, or however often I should say, that particular local church uh, practices the Lord's Supper, whereby believers remind themselves of what Christ has done and they re recommit themselves to Christ and one another. So those are the marks of a true church, orthodoxy, order, and ordinances. That's what a local church is. It's a local body of believers committed to one another where the right preaching of the gospel happens and the ordinance of baptism, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are observed. Now, related to each of these are the works of the church, which are exaltation, edification, 
and evangelism. So the works of the church, starting with exaltation. Uh, to exalt means to praise. Um, in our case, we know that the one true God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is the only one worthy of our ultimate praise, adoration, and devotion. The Westminster Shorter Catechism believe, begins, um, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so that's why, as our doctrinal statement says, these local churches gather weekly in Jesus' name on the Lord's day for worship. Remember that the word for church, ecclesia, means assembly, and that the most common usage in the New Testament refers to the local church. What most fundamentally makes the local church local? It's the fact that it gathers or assembles together. And so we see in the, the New Testament and early church history that from very early on, believers gathered on Sundays, the Lord's Day, because that was the day that Jesus Christ, our Lord, was resurrected. And one of the fundamental reasons for this gathering is for the purpose of worship. It's for the purpose of exaltation. Worship means to show work. And to worship God uh, should be an all-of-life endeavor. Everything we do should be for the glory of God. But there is a particular way that we show God's worth by saying no to any number of other good things we could do with our time and saying yes to gathering with our brothers and sisters in Christ in our local church, to sing praises to God, to sit under the preaching of God's word, and to observe the sacraments. Not only um, are this gathering and the practices we participate in this gathering for God's glory, for the purpose of exaltation, but it's also for our good. And that's what we mean when we say the second work of the church is edification. This is related to the idea that we heard earlier that the part of the purpose of the church, the work of the church, is for equipping one another, for building one another up. And we see this in our doctrinal statement. We say that these local churches gather weekly in Jesus' name on the Lord's Day for worship, including the preaching of the word. Part of the reason that the local church has gathered on the Lord's Day for 2,000 years has been to sit under the preaching of the word, which forms us as believers into the image of Christ. We see this in the Great Commission. That Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. So the journey of faith does not end when someone places their faith in Christ. That we are supposed to help one another grow in Christ. And the most powerful tool that we have to this end is the word of God. Remember this passage that we talked about when we talked about our biblical value. 2 Timothy 2, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. The word of God is our ultimate source for knowing God and his will and conforming our lives to his will. And one of the primary places that we're supposed to encounter God's word is in the weekly gathering of the local church. And that's not just the pastor's job, it's the whole church's job. Every church member bears responsibility to one another for helping one another continue to grow in their faith. Again, I think the words of Jonathan Lehman are, are helpful here. He writes, church membership is a formal relationship between a church and a Christian characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship 
and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the, the church. In other words, that the church is committing to the Christian and the Christian is committing to the church that we are gonna help one another grow in our relationship with Christ. The author of the letter to the Hebrews wrote, let's hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. In this passage, the writer exhorts his audience to hold fast to the faith in Christ. And the way that they're going to do that, the way they're going to help each other, is by encouraging one another. And they can only do that if they maintain the habit of meeting together. And most certainly, the primary, though not the only, but the primary context the, the author has in mind when he's talking about meeting together is the weekly gathering of the church on the Lord's Day. But again, it doesn't end there. We like to say that this weekly gathering of the church on the Lord's Day is both the climax and the starting point of church life. That, in other words, this encouragement and edification of one another happens throughout the life of the church in, in formal settings like discipleship classes and community groups, but also throughout the week informally as believers do life together. That this building up of one another happens as we text one another throughout the week to check in on one another, ask how we're doing, to let them know that we're praying for them. It happens in, in coffee shops. It happens over dinner tables as we invite our brothers and sisters in Christ to share meals with us in our homes. And with each text message, each phone call, each meal, each cup of coffee, each conversation, we are encouraging one another and building one another up in our faith. But just because we reach the end of our gathering or we wrap up our meal with one another or that phone call does not mean that the work is finished. It's just getting started. The final work of the church, after we have exalted God and after we have edified one another, is evangelism. The last part of our doctrinal statement on the church says, From this gathering, believers are sent into the world to invite people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. We talked about this when we talked about our missional value, that we... As the people of God, as the church, as the body of Christ, we are an inherently sent people. As we've said time and time again, Jesus gave his followers a mission to go make disciples of all the nations. Or the way we like to put it at the journey is we have been given a mission to invite people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. Because there is a whole world out there that doesn't know him. That there is a multitude of people out there who do not know the good news of forgiveness of sin and resurrection to eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so it is our duty and it is our delight to tell them, to invite them, to walk alongside them as they move through the various steps in their spiritual journey. Be known, be curious, believe, belong, become, be sent. And so let me again encourage you to come up with your top five. Five people in your life, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family members who don't yet know Jesus or who may know Jesus, but they are not yet connected to a local church community and to pray for them daily, to invite them into your home, to get to know their story, 
including where they're at spiritually. And invite them to our easy invites events, like the Friendsgiving that we just had or the, the Christmas party that we're having in a couple weeks on December 17th. Because there are so many people out there, including people whom God has specifically placed in your life and in my life, who don't yet know Jesus and don't yet know what it looks like to, to live life in a healthy, vibrant local church community like the one we're trying to build here at The Journey. So, where are we in the story? We're in the church age. And what is the church? The church is all people who have placed their faith in Christ throughout history and around the world, who are united in the one holy Catholic or universal and apostolic church. And this universal church is made up of numerous local churches, local bodies of believers committed to Christ and to one another. These local churches gather weekly in Jesus' name on the Lord's Day for worship, including the preaching of the word and observing of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then from this gathering, Believers are sent into the world to invite people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. So let me close by asking you to reflect on this question. What is one step that you can take to get more involved in the budding local church community that we are building here at The Journey? Do you feel led to be a more consistent attender of our mission team meetings here on Sunday afternoons? Do you feel led to support our work financially? Do you feel led to take the step of baptism as a public profession of your faith in Christ and your identification with Christ and his church? Do you feel led to use your gifts, talents, and abilities to serve the church in some way? As we get closer to covenanting together as a church and starting weekly worship gatherings, we're going to need people to set up and tear down. We need people to help lead our congregational singing. We need people to help run ABL. We need people to be on our welcome and hospitality team. And we need people to invest in the lives of the next generation in our children. So where do you sense God might be preparing you to serve within our local church? And last but not least, do you feel led to more regularly pray for your top five and invite them to experience a taste of Christian community in our mission team meetings or at an easy invite event like our Christmas party? Because at the end of the day, what is the church? We are the church. So let's be the church. And we can only do that by God's grace and with his help. So let's go to him now in prayer. Father, we thank you that even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you have made us alive in Christ. That by grace we have been saved through faith, not a result of works, but because you are merciful, you are gracious, because you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, and to rise again as a preview and a promise of the eternal life that we can have through faith in you. And we thank you that not only do you save us from our sins, but you save us to something, that you save us to be members of your family, members of the body of Christ, members of the church. 
And so we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to gather here this evening to discover more what it, it means to be the church. What is the church? What makes the church? What are we supposed to do, Lord? And I would ask that you would make it clear to each one of us our answer to that question that I asked at the end of our lesson, Lord. What is one step that each of us can take to increase our level of commitment and, and experience more of the vibrant life that we are trying to build in this church community called The Journey. We are all on a journey. We're all in our own places on our journey. And so the next step doesn't look the same for all of us, Lord. And so we're asking for your Holy Spirit to impress upon our minds and our hearts what is that one thing that you're calling each of us to do to continue to grow as maturing disciples of Jesus Christ, as maturing members of the body of Christ, as maturing church members, Lord, as we continue to build this community in view of starting a new local church here in the city of Houston. And we ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Journey Church Houston podcast. For more resources and to connect with us, including to learn how you can be a part of the journey, visit thejourneyhouston.org.